The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. Patients are most likely to present with a complication, meaning an abscess or a perforation on their first episode of diverticulitis. Treatment does differ in patients with complicated diverticulitis. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. In this episode of Annals on Call, we discuss two clinical guidelines from the American College of Physicians, diagnosis and management of acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis and colonoscopy for diagnostic evaluation and interventions to prevent recurrence after acute left-sided colonic diverticulitis. Joining me on this podcast is Dr. Lisa Strait, who's Professor of Medicine and Section Chief of Gastroenterology at the Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. We hope you enjoy this discussion. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us again. I just re-listened to the podcast we did. I believe it was either the end of 2018 or 2019, so it was all pre-COVID. And because the uh, American College of Physicians just came out with two guidelines, first on the acute presentation of diverticulitis and the second on concerns about recurrence, I thought it'd be worthwhile to go over their guidelines and update what we talked about, because some things have changed over the last three years. The first thing, and this is something I know we discussed last time, but I think it's really important. How do you decide someone needs a CT for diagnosis of diverticulitis, and what is the value of that CT? Well, first, thanks for having me back again. It's my pleasure. Regarding CT scan, I think that most patients on first diagnosis could benefit from a CT scan. I know it's not readily available everywhere, so it's hard to make that blanket statement, but studies have shown that when we suspect clinically diverticulitis, we're right only 40 to 65% of the time. The rest of the time, there's another diagnosis. Whether or not not treating that specific diagnosis makes a difference, I think is unclear. But for me, it's always nice to know that it's diverticulitis. But I would particularly focus a CT scan on young patients who are increasingly likely to have diverticulitis, but especially young women can have a variety of other etiologies of lower abdominal pain, those with an atypical presentation, and particularly those with a severe presentation Patients are most likely to present with a complication, meaning an abscess or a perforation on their first episode of diverticulitis, and we would want to know about those because the treatment does differ in patients with complicated diverticulitis. They mention in the guideline that they think that the sensitivity and specificity are both above 95%. How often do you personally see what you think are false positives or false negatives? Not that often. It's, it's a good test. I think some people with a lot of past diverticulitis can have some thickening of the sigmoid colon that can be read as acute diverticulitis when it's probably chronic sequelae of diverticulitis. And anything that causes 
particularly the sigmoid colon to be thickened can be a misdiagnosis. Cancer is one of the ones we wouldn't want to miss. Inflammatory bowel disease is another, but CT scan is good. I'm glad you mentioned complicated diverticulitis uh, because the next issue, and at least according to their guideline, the complications, and I'll let you comment on this, are abscess, phlegmon, fistula, obstruction, bleeding, or perforation. Which of those do you see a lot of, and how good is the CT scan for helping us there? Yeah, about 10 to 15% of patients present with a complication. The most common complication is an abscess. Usually an abscess is moderately sized, small abscess, and is not as critical as a large abscess, for example. But we're usually dealing with an abscess more, less frequently, or phlegmon, which is just an inflammatory collection outside the colon. Perforation is less common, but a, a lot more morbid. And those patients usually present, have a severe presentation, very tender abdomen, may have signs of sepsis and are not easy to overlook. A fistula is a chronic complication that we don't usually see patients presenting acutely with, but rather on a chronic basis will present with fecal urea or stool in the vagina, that sort of thing. But it's usually a late complication and often those patients have had multiple attacks of diverticulitis or one severe attack. And the bleeding, um, I, when I think of bleeding, I think of diverticulosis. I assume you can have both diverticulosis and diverticulitis. It's pretty rare to have significant bleeding with <clears throat> diverticulitis. Occasionally people get enough inflammation in the colon mucosa itself to cause a little bit of bleeding, but it's rare to have diverticulitis and significant lower GI bleeding. And diverticular bleeding is sort of a very, is a separate category. Usually wouldn't confuse those. That's usually rapid onset of pretty significant hematochesia. So given this information from the CT scan, and I know we're gonna need to also do history and physical to make these decisions, how do we decide between inpatient and outpatient management? That's a tough one. We don't have, a, we have some studies, but not really clear guidelines. I think that most patients, although we don't have good data on this, are treated as an outpatient. Diverticulitis is very common and patients, primary care providers are very often treating patients as an outpatient, in my opinion. But deciding whether inpatient or outpatient has a lot to do with the severity of the presentation. If you think that someone has an abscess or a perforation, you'd want to get a CT scan. And then most patients, well, definitely every patient with perforation and most patients with an abscess should be managed as an inpatient. And then if they have severe presentation, very elevated white blood cell count and CRP, a high fever, if they can't tolerate oral intake and so they wouldn't tolerate oral antibiotics, those would all be reasons for inpatient management. If they have a lot of comorbid diseases, are frail, elderly, especially if they're immunocompromised, they'd want to treat them as an inpatient. Immunocompromised patients in general might present with a less severe abdominal exam, et cetera, and they'd have a very low threshold for a CT scan in that subgroup of patients. And the outpatient treatment, it's less likely in the ER if the patient doesn't have good primary care follow-up, but it seems like follow-up is essential for treating yes. the patient as an outpatient. That's another thing is, is social support and follow-up reliability, definitely. And then we get to, I guess, the big controversy in diverticular disease uh, over the last decade is when do we use antibiotics and how do we choose antibiotics and when do you, when do you not give antibiotics? It's a huge paradigm shift. And 
the studies first came out of Europe where some of their guidelines even say don't give antibiotics. They're, they're not as individualized as the American guidelines have been. This is really a very individualized uh, decision. And I think that's where guidelines in this area are difficult for primary care physicians or anyone managing this disease. What does that mean? I often have a very frank discussion with patients and find most patients fall into two camps. One, I hate antibiotics. The last time I took Flagyl, it made me more sick than the diverticulitis. I hear that a lot. Or, oh no, antibiotics definitely made me feel better and, and I want to have antibiotics. And so those two groups of patients, I sort of, I treat accordingly. And then the people who fall in the middle who really don't have an opinion, I just have a discussion. If patients have a mild presentation, they're doing well, obviously don't have a CT scan that's suspicious for a complication, I would give them the option to just follow them carefully with a from gentle diet, maybe clear liquids for a couple of days and close monitoring. I wouldn't choose that option in someone that I don't have a relationship with and I don't think would be reliable with follow-up. One of the things that I've uh, written about recently and talked about on several podcasts is short course antibiotics versus longer course antibiotics. How long are you giving antibiotics when you do treat diverticulitis? And is there any movement, since it's a question whether we should even give them or not, Short course is going to cause less complications, and a lot of the complications of antibiotics come to see you anyway. Yes. So there's one study on four days versus seven days that suggests that four days is as good as seven days, but then there are studies that are more robust that say no antibiotics are as good as antibiotics, right. so that makes sense. So I usually give patients a seven-day supply, but say if you're feeling significantly better at four days, you can stop. But if they're immunocompromised, or have other comorbidities or a more severe presentation, certainly if they're inpatient, I would extend that 10 to 14 days and follow the course. Some people need longer for resolution, especially of complications like abscess. Okay, so that's, that's sort of the acute presentation. And I'd like to point out that in the guideline, they point out the evidence for making these decisions and the guidelines is not very good evidence. There's still a lot of debate over what to do. Acute presentation, we sort of have a framework. We're going to get a CT. We're going to decide whether or not they need to be admitted to the hospital. We're going to decide whether or not to give them antibiotics and how long. Now, as a general internist, that's where it stops with me. Where it really starts with you is the concerns about recurrence. And so there are a number of things that uh, they write about uh, and give guidelines about. The first is who needs colonoscopy after left-sided diverticulitis? In GI, that's probably the most debated of these topics other than the antibiotic issue because the data are conflicting with some studies suggesting that the incidence of colon cancer is increased or, or that we pick up more colon cancers and colonoscopy following diverticulitis than we do in patients <clears throat> who haven't had diverticulitis. I think that everyone after an incident episode of diverticulitis, particularly if it's perforated, because those patients are known to have a misdiagnosis on the initial CT, should have a colonoscopy. And just like the guidelines indicate, if they haven't had a high quality colonoscopy in the last one to two years, colon cancer is on the rise. Most patients with diverticulitis are near the age of needing colorectal cancer screening and would benefit from that on that basis alone. So I do think that one colonoscopy after the incident episode of diverticulitis is reasonable. 
understanding that there are complications that patients do have to take a day off work, take a colonoscopy preparation, et cetera. There are some rare complications associated with it as well. But for now, based on the data, I think it makes sense. And uh, this is after the diverticulitis has quieted down. I think that's a really important fact because it's very common for the emergency department, the inpatient service, the primary care doctor to place a referral for a colonoscopy, but you don't want it done right away. You want to wait six to eight weeks after symptom resolution. Some people have a stuttering course and you would not want to do a colonoscopy for a number of reasons while patients have active inflammation and symptoms. So I like that you stressed incident episode of diverticulitis. So people who have recurrent diverticulitis and have already had a colonoscopy, what would be the the triggers? It sounds like perforation or abscess might be a trigger to reconsider. Maybe. Yeah. If they hadn't had a colonoscopy recently, I think it's really important to point out that the treatment of incident disease and recurrent disease is different. For example, someone doesn't need a CT scan every time they show up if they have a long history of diverticulitis and this episode is presenting very similarly, you start to run into a risk of radiation exposure, cumulative exposure over time. Likewise, you don't generally need a colonoscopy. I would do a colonoscopy if there were warning signs or symptoms, for example, bleeding because diverticulitis doesn't usually present with bleeding, if they weren't getting better, or maybe if the CT scan had an abscess and it wasn't clear whether that could could be a cancer. What are the red flags that I should think of that would get me to do another CT scan, someone who presents with what I think is recurrent diverticulitis, what historical things, physical finding things uh, would uh, say, no, I, I need another CT. Severity of symptoms. I think if the episode is more severe or different than the previous episodes, more severe pain, high fever, If it's, you know, looking severe, have them come in and get labs checked, get a a white blood cell count and a CRP. If those are quite elevated, then I would get a CT scan. Does the presence or absence of guarding and rebound affect you at all in that decision? I think they're fairly common in this disorder, but if the abdominal exam seemed particularly acute, especially, you know, guarding, rebound, a CT is reasonable. They looked at what I didn't realize was a relatively common usage that was, was mesalamine to try to prevent recurrences. And they said it doesn't do any good. Are they right? I think so. People are really desperate, providers and patients, for a solution, for something to prevent recurrence in this disease. But we really don't have anything. The data are quite robust with five randomized, maybe six randomized trials that have looked at this but fairly well done. It doesn't seem to make a difference. I certainly have tried prior to these randomized trials in my own practice and haven't found a big difference or any difference really. Part of the problem is that patients have to take these medications daily for a long period of time to know whether they are going to prevent recurrence. And a lot of people just aren't compliant with that over time. But but that said, I, the, the studies were well done and indicate that mesalamine does not have a benefit, unfortunately. And uh, on our previous podcast, we talked about diet nuts and popcorn and all those things. And we couldn't, if someone believes that, that a certain food affects them, we don't, we're not going to argue with them, but we don't think that diet is a big, big component here. 
we don't think that diet precipitates attacks, at least not nuts and popcorn and seeds. Diet does play a big role, and I'm a big fan of, make, of recommending diet and lifestyle changes. We know in prospective cohort studies that individuals who lead a, quote, healthy lifestyle are much less likely, in fact, 75% less likely to get incident diverticulitis. We don't have as good a data or really any robust data on recurrence, but it might make sense that the same risk factors would be true for recurrent disease. And I find it a really good opportunity to encourage individuals to make some healthy changes that are good for them really in every respect, meaning eating more fruits and vegetables, trying to exercise five days a week, try to maintain or achieve a body weight, you know, an ideal body weight or a recommended body weight, BMI less than 25. It's, it can be a, a real point when people recognize that their, their lifestyles are unhealthy and are willing to make a change. That's great. And then the big, big question that I've had friends ask me about uh, with recurrent diverticulitis, when do you go to surgery? And it is shared decision-making. And I'm, and because you have to decide with patients. Can you discuss how you do that shared decision-making and what makes you even consider recommending surgery to the patient? And what's the, what are the pluses and minuses that you tell them? Yeah, it's, it's too bad that really the only preventative therapy we have is to remove the involved part of the colon, but it is there and it does decrease the risk of recurrence, not eliminate it. And I think that's one of my major talking points is you can have these, this surgery and your risk of recurrence will certainly go down, but it's not eliminated. There is a possibility that you'll have diverticulitis in the future. My clinic's rather full of those patients because they've already tried surgery and they're pretty desperate and they have another attack and that's disappointing for sure. But in terms of the decision, um, surgery or not, persistence of symptoms. If someone has what has been coined smoldering diverticulitis, they've had multiple attacks in a short time period. They may never have resolved with antibiotics. They may resolve for a little bit and then they get symptoms again. CT scan shows they're still inflamed. Uh, those patients are unlikely to improve with medical therapy. And I give them multiple courses of antibiotics, maybe even IV antibiotics. But if evidence of inflammation and symptoms persist, they're best served by surgery and often have an extremely inflamed colon at the time of surgery. So that's one group that I really don't question. The other is just based on severity and frequency of episodes, which is highly tied to quality of life. So if patients have long episodes that really don't resolve with antibiotics, they're missing work, they're afraid to travel, I might recommend surgery. If their episodes are particularly severe and they're very afraid to have another one, I might recommend surgery. That's in contrast to an individual who may have a couple of episodes per year, but they're mild. They resolve in a few days, often without antibiotics. They're able to go to work, probably wouldn't recommend surgery in those individuals. I think it's important to consider comorbid disease and their risks for surgery because complications are fairly significant. The guideline actually quoted about a 5% risk of major complications. In randomized trials, it's closer to 10%. Things like anastomotic leak, wound dehiscence, so you have to consider that. I think immunocompromised patients, my, my threshold for surgery is much lower because they're at much higher risk of having complicated disease down the line. And then one thing that I think is often overlooked is the location of diverticulitis. And that's another reason to get at least a couple of CT scans over the course of someone's history. 
But if someone has diverticulitis that's occurring, let's say, in the transverse colon or the proximal descending colon and also in the sigmoid colon, it's quite hard for a surgeon to resect that entire area of the colon. It would need to be part of the discussion. It's a somewhat bigger operation, at least from my medical perspective, that's what I've heard, versus someone who's had every episode in the same location of the colon. If they have that part resected, most typically the sigmoid colon, their chances of doing well and not having recurrence down the line are better. The literature is not robust, but there is literature on that. And in my experience, that's quite true. So you need to take into consideration where it is, whether it's multifocal or only in one location. And I assume that you have one or two or three surgeons who you know are conservative about doing surgery. They're not eager to do surgery. There are surgeons who are eager to do surgery for diverticulitis. And uh, it's both the gastroenterologist and the surgeon, and often the uh, internist or family physician uh, who are going to be talking to the patient. And so that team approach of if you think that they might want to have surgery, what surgeon do you send them to? That's true. I do have surgeons that I think are thoughtful. I think you want to refer a patient to a surgeon who's thoughtful about it, who's read the guidelines. I would be worried if a surgeon said, oh, you definitely need surgery because you're young or because you've had two attacks. This is sort of based on old guidelines now. So a thoughtful surgeon that's willing to talk over the risks and benefits, to be honest about the fact that there are complications and that this does not guarantee that you'll be free of future episodes of diverticulitis. The other area that comes into play that we haven't mentioned yet is functional bowel symptoms, or we call visceral hypersensitivity. Studies have shown that following an episode of diverticulitis, there's a a very high risk. Patients are somewhere around five times more likely to develop irritable bowel syndrome, syndrome or functional bowel disease. And it can be really easy to mistake that from recurrent diverticulitis. There really aren't good data probably not a good indication to do surgery for irritable bowel syndrome. So a surgeon has to be in tune and and the referring physician about that possibility as well. Well, Lisa, thank you so much. I think that you've added a great deal to what we discussed uh, several years ago and given us a very thoughtful interpretation of these important guidelines from the American College of Physicians. It was my pleasure. And I hope in three years we have more data to guide us and we can do another one. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. CT scanning is appropriate for all incident diverticulitis and any subsequent episode with warning signs. It helps distinguish simple versus complicated diverticulitis. The question of antibiotics remains unsettled. It seems to be acceptable to withhold antibiotics in uncomplicated diverticulitis or to consider short course antibiotics. Dr. Strait gives a seven-day prescription and instructs patients to discontinue the antibiotics after four days if the diverticulitis is clinically resolved. Finally, surgery does work for some patients with recurrent bothersome diverticulitis, specifically when it's located in one area, but this does require shared decision-making because there are complications of surgery and there's not a guarantee that surgery will prevent recurrence. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast.
For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.